God made us a family. Following talk was given at St. Maximilian Kolbe Catholic Church in Houston, Texas on Tuesday, June 5th as part of the World Meeting of Families Catechesis Series. In this talk, Alan Aber of Your Holy Family Ministries discusses the fifth catechesis entitled The Culture of Life. In this talk, Alan talks about the critical role that the family plays in promoting a culture of life and how to teach your children to value all life from conception to natural death. Tonight, we're going to talk about the culture of life, which uh, a lot of us know what the culture of life is. We've heard that talked about that uh, we live in a culture of death right now. That was John Paul II. He, he talked about how that's really what we're fighting, is this culture where, where they say that death is the answer. Death is the answer and the solution to our problems. So this is somewhat related to that, but it's more so related to the uh, the call in the catechism where it says are you or even even in our marriage vows where we say are you are you willing to accept children and raise them it's the education of children so the culture of life is more than just that I did I did so that's what we're going to talk about tonight and the uh, scripture verse that we have to meditate upon is, and Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and grace before God and men. So the culture of life, yet the scripture we're looking at is Jesus at age 12, really from 12 to sometime probably in his, in his 20s, of he advanced in wisdom and age and grace before God and men. It's a lot smaller opening prayer tonight. You have your... Uh, no, didn't bring them. All right, well, you guys are young. I have an extra. Y'all can no, see. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and open with prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm. Lord Jesus, you who faithfully visit and fulfill with your presence the church and the history of men, you who in the miraculous sacrament of your body and blood render us participants in divine life, and allow us a foretaste of the joy of eternal life. We adore you as you, prostrated before you, source and lover of life, truly present and alive among us. We beg you, reawaken in us respect for every unborn life. Make us capable of seeing in the fruit of the maternal womb the miraculous work of the Creator. Open our hearts to generously welcoming every child that comes into life. Bless all families, sanctify the union of spouses, render fruitful their love, accompany the choices of legislative assemblies with the light of your spirit, so that peoples and nations may recognize and respect the sacred nature of life, of every human life. Guide the work of scientists and teachers so that all progress contributes to the integral well-being of the person and no one endures suppression or injustice. Give creative charity to administrators and economists so that they realize and promote sufficient conditions so that young families can serenely embrace the birth of new children Console the married couples who suffer because they are unable to have children, and in your goodness provide for them. 
Teach us all to care for orphaned or abandoned children, so they may experience the warmth of your charity, the consolation of your divine heart, together with Mary, your mother, the great believer in whose womb you took on our human nature. We wait to receive from you our only true God and Savior, the strength to love and serve life, in anticipation of living forever in you, in communion with the Blessed Trinity. Amen. That starts out with this. And this is something that we're going through. We've been going through this for a few years now, and hopefully we're getting better at it. Coming of age. You guys have a few years for that. Some of us here have already gone through this. There's at some point when a young man or woman, and we can all think back even on our own lives, where we just felt this rebellion, this desire to be independent and to grow up, to be autonomous. At the age of two? <laughs> Make your own no. decisions. <laughs> Sometimes. I did have a child that was a little more autonomous at a younger age. But it's something that's normal. You think about it, and you got a long time to think about this, for you guys with the, the twins. But for, for us, it, uh, especially with the first one, it just kind of snuck up on us. It's like, huh, I guess they are ready to be on their own. And we know a lot of couples, a lot of, a lot of families that have children that reach that age of 17, 18, 19, 20. And, and it's a difficult time. But it's normal for a young person to assert their autonomy. Jesus did it at the age when people normally did that, when they were considered adults back in the, in the time when he walked upon the earth. He asserted his autonomy by saying, look, I was, I was in my father's house. I was doing the work God is calling me to do. Well, for our young people, they feel that same longing. Uh, my son is he's 18 now. He just graduated from high school, and he's, uh, he's actually moving here to uh, take a job for a career, to be a mechanic. And as I've been talking to him about that, I said, well, you know, you could just stay at the same job you have today. It's a mechanic shop. The guy's happy to have you. It's five minutes from our house. I said, but I don't, I don't know that it really has a whole lot of future. And the guy who owns it, he's a good man. He's pretty happy and content. He's got his nice place. He's, he gets to do what he wants to do on the weekends, his shop makes enough money, and, and he's not really, I don't see a whole lot of motivation for him to grow his business. And uh, I told my son that, or just kind of, you know, musing about it, and, and he said, yeah, you know, I just feel like I'm ready to do, I'm ready, to, ready for the next thing, I'm ready to go out and, and do something. And that's just a normal thing, and it's, it's normal for, for many young men and I'd say for young women as well, I mean, my, my wife, when she went off to college, she came home once, for one summer, and that was it. And she's like, nope, I'm ready to be on my own and, uh, and stay up here in Austin. And so different personalities have different times where that, that, that urge to pave your own path, to do your own thing, to, to assert your autonomy happens. And for the parents, it's usually they're never ready for it unless it's your ninth child. I hope for us, when our ninth one, um, that we'll be more prepared for it. I know that we are with the children that we have now because we've already done it three times. 
for the most part. We've sent three three children out, now our fourth one, and uh, we still worry about them, but it's becoming easier to prepare them for the world because really that's what we're called to do as parents. Um, our job, as, as my wife and I talk about quite a bit, is you know our, our job is to create people that can be successful in the world or contribute to society, right? To, to kind of take that next step. And, and if we don't prepare them to be able to enter society and, and be part of the community and to hopefully be a positive part of that community, we really failed in our job. Our job is not to convince our children that they'll never be comfortable apart from us. It is truly that to help them truly become human, which that's part of giving life, that we, we give them birth, we feed them when they're little and they can't feed themselves, we teach them how to be fully human you know, with the light of God's word and also how to live independently from us. But no parent is fully prepared for that moment, especially for their first one. Many times when you see that happen, and, and it could be true in your own lives or in people that you know, where when that uh, tension arises and a child is getting ready to leave and is, is in essence telling their mom or dad, that can be male or female, I need you to butt out. <laughs> I need you to stop telling me what to do. There can be that tension, there can be a, a rupture in that family relationship. It happens so often. However, if we look at the scripture, um, the scripture that we're talking about tonight, we see that that didn't happen within the Holy Family. Sure, they were shocked that their son was asserting his autonomy. And they expressed that. And so they give us a good model for how to deal with that. And we'll talk about that over the next few slides. So our children should feel that freedom. They should feel that we've been preparing them for this moment their whole lives. It should not be this all of a sudden we've been uh, just poking right along and then all of a sudden they graduate from high school and we're like shocked, like, oh no, now what? Right? Life has to change now. Well, it should have been changing kind of that, 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 that whole way. Or we've given them the, the confidence, I'd say confidence is, is another good term, to be autonomous and to be responsible. We don't see that a whole lot, but it's something that we should definitely be striving for. So I like this, this, uh, this sentence here. We took it straight out of the text. Parents teach the value of reciprocity, which is respect for differences and the ability to give and take. And that value of reciprocity ensures the child's healthy growth to maturity. I think that's saying we're not supposed to raise spoiled brats. I mean, that kind of what that's describing? If, if you respect differences and you're willing to compromise, that means that you don't think you know everything and you don't think you're entitled to everything. So we are to raise children that understand that they are not God. And if we do that, they will grow into maturity in a healthy manner. So what is the meaning of life? I know the meaning of life. Anyone? 
get to heaven. Huh? What? She said to get to heaven. Um, I don't know. I read the other day something. Catechism 101. No love and serve. No love and serve the Lord and to be for with him, with him forever in heaven. Yeah, that's the Baltimore Catechism. Still true today as it was back. Oh, because I, the other was for coming across. Uh, says that that life is what is the meaning of life is to put other people's uh, interests first before your own fear or your own needs. You know. And I thought, that's oh yeah, time. that's right. <laughs> to love. To love. To love. I love. To 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 love. Danae really liked this, this sentence here. Every day should be experienced as holy, soaking in its beauty and depth. And that's why I put the, the beauty of the mountains and, and just nature. Right? It, is, uh, it is something that a, a good preach friend of ours, he, he, uh, he takes kids on, uh, he takes really good, good kids, right? I mean, there's not like the, you know, you hear about some of these programs where they take them out to the wilderness, they're kind of from the inner city, they have drug gang problems, they take them out to the wilderness, and changes their lives forever. Well, our friend does that with like people who go to um, uh, church RE and think they've learned everything. And he's like, no, 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 there's so much more. Let's go to the mountains. Um, and that's, his, that's one of his ministries. And he says, you know, beauty transcends wherever you're at. If you go out and experience this beauty of God, you're actually getting that foretaste of heaven. you're learning the meaning of life, that we are small. We're small and, and almost inconsequential. That there is so much more, except God loves us individually as though we were the only person on earth. So it's a mystery. How do we, how do we acknowledge our own smallness and yet still understand just how God loves us with this, this intense love? So growing in maturity for the young person is not a private event. I said that Jesus grew in wisdom and age before God and men. Didn't say he just he grew up and learned a lot from his mom and dad. He grew up in the community. And we do. Whether the community is healthy or not, we grow up in a community. If we have a healthy community, it will be better for us and for our children. But the maturity of that young person is definitely not a private event. It is something that the community participates in and the community is affected by. You can think about the communities in Houston that uh, are places you wouldn't be caught after dark. The actions of the young people who are not growing up in maturity um, affects the community and everybody notices it. So when you help a young person to grow in understanding the meaning of life and growing in maturity, then you actually build up the body of Christ and the church. So every person, you know, as we talk about community, right, it is one of our, our, our six things that we always talk about in family ministry is the importance of community. And it's one that actually upsets a lot of people. 
because they're pretty happy in the communities that they're at. And we tell them, you know, you really need to have a community that will support you in living out a virtuous life, that will support you in living your Catholic faith. And if you don't have that, you need to get it. And they're like, well, what do you want me to get rid of all my friends? Because they look at everyone going, I don't have any Catholic friends. Everybody I go hang out with, they drink and they swear and they you know, do all these things. And that's like, I, gotta, I, I, I can't do that? So it's not best. Your community, you know, a priest, I just listened to his talks and he said, uh, if you sit in manure long enough, you'll come out smelling funny. If you're in a community where everybody's getting divorced, you're probably going to have trouble in that area. It's probably going to be easier for one or more spouses to choose divorce. If you're in a community where everybody stops having children after two, it's probably going to be harder for you to have more children to be open to where God may be leading you. Um, the, the, the examples could go on and on as far as those, those kind of difficult things that we struggle with in the community. And that's why we as Catholics are called to be within the community because to be fully human means to be fully mature and to fully follow God's ways. And to the extent that we don't do that, our world is less human. You can look around our world and probably find many examples of immature behavior and a lack of humanity. Let's look at abortion. That is, that is dehumanizing um, children in the womb. You can look at what happened in Nazi Germany and see, you know, there, were, there was a class of people that were dehumanized. There was something wrong with that community that people could be uh, killed pretty close to people. I mean, people knew what was going on and they, that they said nothing. So the community can either build you up or it can lead you down a path where you start to accept evil and call it good. So every person is a human asset for the good of the world. And each child, no matter how they came to be, is a gift of God. They should be loved, and they are loved by God before they arrive. And if you look at it with the eyes of God, you can see that they are a reflection of that primacy of the love of God. Right? That, that God loves us so much that he gives us a gift that we could never have created on our own. As much as the scientists try to create human life, they always have to create it from something. But God really is the one that creates it. It says we start to view um, human life as something of a commodity. Uh, if you look at just the, the I don't know, it was back in the late 70s, I guess, when the first test tube baby happened. And the church warned against it. They wrote a, uh, an encyclical on the dangers of creating life outside of God's plan. And it has gone, and I think some of the dangers of that have, have we see and experience in our world, in that because we can now, people think we can create life, um, you have an example of the, uh, um, I think there was somebody in Australia, she was pregnant with twins, they did an ultrasound, determined that one had some abnormalities, and the woman decided to terminate one of the life of one of the children, and they, they terminated the wrong life. So you look at that attitude of, wow, okay, so that was, that was wrong on many levels. But it goes back to that idea that, um, and I, I've heard this from, from a few people, um, and I've read a few articles about it, where 
people select, right? I, I can tell based on what's in the petri dish, right? The babies that have been fertilized, I can tell which ones are going to have blue eyes, which ones are going to have brown eyes, which ones are going to be male, which ones are going to be female, and I can now choose. I think the doll is lost. It says I can now choose what type of, <laughs> of features that I want my child to have, right? Um, in vitro fertilization, I mean, you're generally fertilizing and creating a number of lives. It's, it's, and, and they never implant all the lives into the mother. And when they do, many of them don't survive that process anyway. So you have this consumer society that I want a child and I will do whatever it takes to get a child. And it becomes then a consumer, right? I have, and, and you can see this at the soccer field, you guys haven't gotten there yet. Just wait, it's crazy. Soccer, baseball, all these different sports, and you see parents out there who are very hard on their children. They have an expectation that this child was purchased in a sense. I went through this type of suffering to, to have a child, and, and now that we have this child, they're for my enjoyment, my benefit. Um, and so they end up taking it out a little hard on children when they're not as good as they think they should be. Instead of viewing the child as a gift from God for the good of society, they view the children as a gift to me for my good that will bring me happiness. And when that child doesn't bring that happiness or doesn't fulfill those expectations, they generally express that displeasure. Just keep an eye on that. It's, it's an interesting phenomenon to see, but it comes back to this idea that we don't love people for themselves. We love people for what they can do for us. And, and that's, that's very dangerous. It, it leads its way right into the culture of death. Because if I get pregnant when I don't want to or I don't think I can handle it, I can solve that by killing the child. Um, I can uh, um, take my life when I mean, today a, a famous person committed suicide. She was a very famous uh, designer of handbags yeah. and things. Shoes. <laughs> and she was 55 years old. And we don't know exactly why she took her life. She did write a note. She had a 13-year-old daughter and a husband. They were all still living in the same house. And yet she chose death to solve her problems. Whether there was mental illness affecting it or not, we don't know. But you see it over and over. The answer many times is death or the death of someone else that's preventing your happiness. So the culture of death is real and we have to combat it in a very profound way by showing that life is truly valuable not because of what it can do for us, not its utility value, but because God made it, and it is a great gift to us. And right into the next one. Children are a great gift from God. I think I just talked about everything on this slide. Yeah. Man has lost the perception that a child is a great gift from above. They think it's a great gift from the doctor, a great gift from their spouse, or but to realize it is from God. Scripture talks about that, that... Uh, you know, I have conceived a child with the help of the Lord. 
I think we're very far away from that as a culture. And we can be witnesses to that. Because just as I have kind of pointed out some of those negative witnesses of, of people treating their children as property and as, as something to bring them personal fulfillment, we can be that sign to the contrary. Where, um, you know, when people meet us, when we were still fertile, um, they would say, don't you know what causes that? Now, my wife can't have any more children. And when, when we, I actually posted this, I told people, I said, you know, with the ninth one, my wife was in the hospital for a month, and she came out with a little less than she went in. And she's recovering for now a long time because of the partial hysterectomy. And I said, and, and we're very sad that for that loss of fertility. And, and it was, it was, a, it was a real loss to us because, I mean, we, we notice it all the time now because our youngest is nine. There's no more babies in the house. So we're actually excited about the possibility of grandchildren one day because that will bring babies back into the house with our older children, especially our youngest guy. I mean, he doesn't know what it's like to take care of a, a baby. All of our other kids had some experience with that. But just our decision to be open to life, because we had no reason not to be, um, was a sign to many people because they're like, hey, wait, you got, you got your, your boy. Finally, after four kids, you got your boy. You don't need any more. Because in their minds, it was not about having children for their sake. It was about having children to bring, to complete your life, to complete your family in some fashion. And it's not that. People would say, well, why do you have so many? I said, because we were blessed with them. My mother, she was only able to have one child. It was me. My brother's adopted. And my mother was an only child. Her mother was only able to have one child. So we're, we're, we're very blessed. I know many people who are, who are infertile. And it's a deep pain. Whether they say it or not. You know, they may have had two children and then the fertility's gone. They don't talk about it, but it's pain that they have. So we can be that light to the world to show them that you know, we have these children not for our own benefit. We're not slave laborers. We don't have a farm. There's no benefit to having another child other than we're paying more money for them. Right? And, uh, but, but they bring something unique to our family and to the world, to the society. And it's by God's plan. So the loss of the sense of God has given way to a belief that man is the ruler of his life. The more we think we control, the further we get from God. We must realize that if God didn't will for us to be here, we would not be here. But somehow, with all the beauty of what man can accomplish, I guess it's kind of like the Tower of Babylon. As they built the tower, they thought, we can... We can build our, 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 our structure all the way to heaven. And we're kind of doing the same thing. We're that close to creating life. What they're talking about cloning. They've cloned lambs already. That's scary. Are we really going to be God? Does our society think that we can? I think atheism's on the rise. They believe that we know enough to not have to believe in God. At least that's what they'll say. It's a fairy tale. You, know, you can see the in the subways in New York, they do a campaign every Christmas. You know, stop believing in, you know, you don't believe in Santa Claus anymore. 
stop believing in God. It's just a fairy tale. It's because they've lost their sense of God. And man has become the ruler of his life. He can do everything. So even if a child enters the world through less than ideal circumstances, they must feel wanted. They say that even a child in the womb can feel that the mother does not want him or her. They're very affected by their surroundings. So we used to, uh, uh, I don't know, you, you would read to other kids, and so the baby in the womb would hear that mother's voice. That's why when the baby comes out, and he or she will turn to the mother you know, when, she, when he, he or she hears that voice. Because he's been hearing that voice in the womb. It's actually a very beautiful plan. But it's not always like that for many children. And you see the effects of it. So families who accept, raise, and surround with affection. Children that have disabilities. We go to a, a Catholic family camp, and there's one particular week that seems to have a lot of special needs children. And, uh, and it's a beautiful thing to see. Now, uh oh Must be a problem with the child. <laughs> when we value those lives that are less than perfect, it's even a more visible sign that we value life. Because, like the example of my wife and I with the nine children, that's one, but our children are in relatively good health. But when you see a child that, or a person, an adult child, that has physical deformities and, and uh, some type of disability, and there's still someone that loves and cares for them, it really goes against that whole idea that children exist to make us happy. Because there is nothing you gain. You just give and give and give. And those families that have special needs children are some of the happiest families we've ever met. It's because they see the gift of God in every life. You know, people have children with Down syndrome. They have the happy and the love, the love gene, as they call it, because they love you. They can also be very mean. <laughs> but you accept them with all of them, just like with us. We're not perfect. So to be fully human, the family protects human life in all its stages. Even the last. Anybody remember when John Paul II passed away? I know for me it was a very powerful time because he was the only pope I ever knew. And I had started reading his readings at that time. And uh, it was like losing a parent. To see him, and it was a very public death. I mean, they, they, had, they showed all the people in St. Peter's Square watching and waiting for word that, that the Pope had passed away. Everybody, I mean, people traveled to Rome to be there for that time. Now, I've had I, as, uh, the privilege, it kind of is, I've been at the, the bedside of, of uh, two people that have passed away at the moment when they passed away. Both of them were, were cancer. One was my mother and one was a, a friend of ours that passed away a few years before my mother did. And that was a very humbling time 
to be with someone and to, to just be comforting the, the loved ones um, as someone was about to take their last, last breath and dying with dignity, which is what John Paul II did. I mean, if anything, he showed someone how to die with dignity because he knew he was going to die. You kept seeing the signs of his Parkinson's was getting worse. He was hunched over more. I mean, if you look at pictures of him early on, he was a strong man and he would do World Youth Days and all these things. He traveled the world. And yet, in his, later in his, his, his years, it was hard for him, but yet he still got on the plane and went to the place. And thousands, I mean, millions of people would come and see him. He was a public figure up until his death. And the young people were the primary folks there in St. Peter's Square, standing vigil, praying for this man who was a father to them. You see so many good priests these days that say, yeah, I was a John Paul II priest. I was, I was in Denver when he came for World Youth Day. Our spiritual director, that was, that was his story. He went to Denver and he heard the Pope praying the Our Father in Latin. And he went, oh my gosh, my father. So being with the old and the aged, they have just as much value, if not more, than a baby. I mean, whole life has the same value, but a lot of people view the young and the old as having less utility. Right? The little baby, I mean, there's a guy in Princeton, I think that's where he's at, he's a professor of ethics. He believes that the uh, legal age of abortion should be four. What is that? That's killing a child because they cannot survive on their own. They bring nothing to society. Peter Singer, I think is the name. You can go search on it. It's horrible. But he truly talks about this. He says, well, they're not really aware of themselves. Therefore, it's just the same. Now, he's actually being pretty honest because I saw this one video. It was the magic, the magic birth canal. That's what they called it. They said, okay, the baby is over here. Not a baby. As he goes through the birth canal, as soon as he pops out, Presto, a baby! It's to show that just how, how odd that, 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 that understanding is that for some reason you can kill the child here and when he's out of the birth canal, you can't. What, kind of, a what kind of a childhood he had? <laughs> I don't know if he had any children. Well. No, what kind of a childhood he had? Childhood. Childhood he had. I do not know. I do not know. For him, it's about, well, how do you determine when a child or when, when a clump of cells becomes a human person. Um, the best argument I've heard is, as soon as sperm and the egg unite, you have something that is a separate life. That's one, a finite point where something happens. There's no other point in the evolu evolution, not even evolution, there's no other point in the growth of the child that you can say, Okay, something else happened here. There was no flash of light. In fact, the flash of light happens when the sperm and the egg come together. They, they, they've, they've seen it now. Maybe it's because of in vitro fertilization, but they've actually seen this, this psh, spark off. Oh, no. Which one is Where is it? I think it's this one on the end. The next one. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> um, so there's no one point where something changes unless when the baby comes out of the womb. But you know what? That doesn't happen at the same time for everyone. My daughter was born three months early. She was born at 
or 27 weeks, 27 and a half weeks. And she came out of the birth canal, okay. Well, no, she, she was born, born <laughs> because of a C-section, yeah. Um, and for him, he's looking at it going, okay, well, it must be when they become aware. And he says, that happens around age four. Well, that's not true for everybody. Right? Kids, kids, kids mature differently with their going through puberty. The only thing that goes from one thing to something new is at conception. But they can't acknowledge that, otherwise they'd have to say that you cannot abort, you cannot kill a child, because a child exists inside the womb of a mother. So, that's a, uh, maybe even a bit of a tangent. <laughs> but it's worthwhile, I, and I, we, we I guess from a practical standpoint, it shows the importance of family. It shows the importance of what a family that loves each member of their family, whether they are uh, of use to society, to the members of the family or not, when you love them the same, that's a powerful witness to a world that does not believe that. Because at the other end, maybe not even that far, say you have somebody that... Uh, is married and one spouse gets in a car accident and is paralyzed. And it's it's a danger, right? Uh, Christopher Reeve was one, right? And I think his wife stood by him the whole time until he passed away of natural causes. Um, Nancy Reagan, on the other hand, when she saw her husband, Ronald Reagan, go through Alzheimer's, she started campaigning for uh, some, some pretty uh, unethical means of uh, I forget what it was but she's like you know that the suffering that he it's went through was for nothing it was too hard and so people need encouragement from others they need to see that that value is there no matter the utility of a person and if the culture shifts to viewing everybody in a, as, as, as having a value because of what they can do the young are going to be devalued, and the old or the infirm or the mentally ill, uh, the crippled, they will all be viewed as having less value. And that dehumanizes everybody, because it will start out being this one class of people, and then it will be this thing, and then it will be this one, and next thing it will be us, because we're not perfect. We don't have blonde hair and blue eyes, like the Nazis, but we wanted to have that perfect race. They, they're really the ones that started it in a systematic fashion. Uh, they did all kinds of tests on the mentally ill, all kinds of tests on, on uh, uh, people who had physical deformities. It was, it was brutal. So Christian marriages enliven society by their fraternity. That means their, their, their shared life together, their, their love for each other, fraternal love. Social concern for the underprivileged, visible faith at home. So if you look at this, you can see the church. If you look back at the history of the church, even in the United States, some of the first U.S. saints were ones who went out and served the underprivileged. We hold up, I mean, Mother Teresa used to be a person that was well-respected within the U.S. Until she came to the U.S. at a presidential prayer breakfast, she said, it is a poverty to kill the child in the womb. <laughs> Everybody was holding her up as, oh my gosh, look at all this great stuff she's doing for the poorest of the poor. And she said, you know what? You are a poor country because you kill, you allow babies to be killed in the womb. 
So it is becoming less fashionable in our society to take care of the underprivileged and to give that visible sign of faith and hope. Family is the place of God's presence and is a link between God and life. To help the world become more human by promoting the dignity of the human person. That's a profound statement. The family is that important. And every one of us has that opportunity. Because <clears throat> people notice. It's becoming rarer to have people be giving of themselves unselfishly. To take care of a parent as opposed to just putting them in a nursing home. Not always possible. But I know we get comments every time we go visit my dad in his retirement community, which is just a step above a nursing home. Every time we go visit him, people say, oh, it's so nice to see you here all the time. I'm like, I don't come that often. I don't. I mean, not as often as, as I probably should. I live in Round Rock. He lives here. And yet, they always notice when I'm there. Probably because they're not seeing their family as much as they'd like to. So people notice that. The family absolutely has the ability and the duty to be a symbol of God's love in this world. To love those who the world deems unlovable. To love when it hurts. To love when it's not convenient. And it's built into the DNA of the family. Because the family is there to support each other and to lighten the burdens of each other and to, to love each other. Thank you for listening. For more information on Your Holy Family Ministries, please visit yourholyfamily.org.